1: if you like this program, visit heritageradio network.org for thousands more.
2: Good morning. You're listening to In the Drink on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Joe Campanelli. Um, the uh, beverage director for the Epicurean Group of restaurants and uh, Epicurean events, and today we have on a uh, an exciting guest. Um, we have Katie Parla on today. Katie is a uh, by all means an expert in everything when it comes to um, food and drink. Italy, especially, uh, especially, especially in Rome. She has her uh, bachelor's degree from Yale, but she got her master's um, in Rome and has written for. Tons of great publications um, like Travel and Leisure, Afar, Bon Appetit, Food and Wine, New York Times, um, and some you might have heard of as well. <laughs> I mean, pretty much everyone. She's uh, on TV all the time, she's on uh, National Geographic, uh, she has a, a web series called Kitty Parlors Rome, a blog, an app. Katie, what what don't you do? You sound like a very very busy lady. Well,
3: don't worry, I still find time to drink. So
2: okay. <laughs> um, so I wanna, I, you know, I wanna talk to you about how. Uh, how obviously you're you're an American, um, yes, from Jersey, from from New Jersey, uh, who traveled to Italy and fell in love with it. Um, I, I did the same, but some New York pulled me back. Um, it's an
3: appealing city. <laughs> I understand it.
2: <laughs> uh, and you stay and you stayed there. Uh, obviously, you split your time now uh, between the states, uh, some time in London. You're, you also do some some travel writing on London and Istanbul. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it seems like Rome is your
3: focus definitely. I mean, I moved to Rome with this idea that it was going to be a place that sort of satisfied all my senses. And the more time I spent there, the less it lived up to the mythological expectations that I had. So, I mean, in a sense, it was the art and architecture that attracted me, but the food and beverage, and above all the changing food and beverage that uh, kept me there, that still keeps me there. I want to document what's going on right now. Um, and I think, you know, to contemporary Rome. Excuse me. Contemporary Rome uh, cuisine and beverage is something that really remains quite obscure to most visitors.
2: Yeah, so. and so you did your undergrad in uh, art history, correct?
3: Yeah, but eating lots of pizza all the time <laughs> in New Haven, <laughs> so
2: uh, many pizzas. And, you know, I I, uh, I took an, an art history class in 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 Florence, so obviously, uh, you know. I, I not my major, or anything. But what what struck me was when you're in Italy, and I'm sure this is the case in, in many European countries, but you know, Italy was my experience. You can view art in the place that it was meant to go there. Absolutely. You know, here we when we view art, a lot of times it's it's in a gallery or a museum, um, out of context. Uh, but there, it's like this is exactly how they intended for it to be viewed.
3: Yeah, and there's so many exciting places where you can see frescoes and altar pieces inside you. Um, though there are plenty of examples in Rome where works have been taken out of their context, put in a museum setting, some successful, some less successful in terms of display and experience. But yeah, I mean, you're in in essence, um, whether you're living in Rome or Venice or Milan or Florence, you're living in a living museum.
2: Mm-hmm. And so, how long? Uh, did it take for you to feel like you were you know part of it? Did you feel like that Rome was the place that you were meant to be, or did you feel like you were out of out of context for a while?
3: <laughs> I mean, I always felt like it was the place that I had to live. Um, I think when I first moved there, I felt like i could I could assimilate somehow, mm-hmm. but the more time I spent, the more my American (laughs) character um, sort of asserted itself. Um, And, you know, I, I recognize that in Italy, as you know, from living in Florence, people are extremely regionally based. So unless you're born or at least raised most of your time in a city, you're never actually adopted into that city though. You know, I constantly encounter people who say like, Oh, I'm from Rome, like seven generations Roman. And then you find out that their grandparents or their parents are from Abruzzo. And it's like, there is this desire to be part of that place um, to the point that people fabricate their own biographies. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I was never able to do that. So, and I'm, I'm, I like walking the line between both places because I feel very integrated into Italian gastronomic culture. Um, I love being inside to consume the foods and mm-hmm. drinks from there. But I also look at the place um, with with an outsider's eye, an analytical eye, one that even some of the know, greatest um, food critics and and wine writers in in Italy um, sometimes aren't able to do. They're clouded by their, like, nationalism or regional pride, um, and I don't buy into that, so.
2: Yeah, and, you know, just going by by what you said, I I had stayed in Rome uh, with a friend who who was writing for uh, the Gambro Rosso, and um, he lived very close to this fantastic pizzeria. I'm sure you know it called Pizzarium. Oh, yeah. Um, kind of in the the residential area behind the Vatican, mm-hmm. and uh every day what he lived above this great cafe, I went every single morning, and it wasn't until like the third or fourth day that they acknowledged me mm-hmm. um and then by the fifth fifth day they were asking me questions, and the sixth day it was like, you're all right, a regular, you're, yeah, we'm <laughs> regular and and part of it um so so I mean, just as a foreigner traveling abroad, I, I like, you know, you, I, I search for that feeling as, as part of it. But but I totally get what you see about people uh, that, that, you know, distinct character that,
3: uh, especially in Rome. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I think you touch on an important um, notion there. It doesn't take long to become a regular at a Roman cocktail bar, at a pizzeria, at a cafe. Um, and you can very easily sort of become... Um, sort of part of the culture but you're never really let in fully Mm. um and you know as a foreigner living in rome i love going to the same you know pubs or cocktail bars over and over again um as a person who wants to inform people about food and drink (laughs) um, i like to highlight the great cocktail bars of rome but with with uh caveats like do go to um dal verme for a cocktail but do not go on Monday because the great bartenders aren't there or don't go before nine o'clock because even though they open at eight, they're not set up and they'll end up serving you something ridiculous just in haste. So, um, I think that sort of plays back into the being a regular, but then also having the, the ability to take a step back.
2: That's great. I mean, that's the kind of advice that you're not going to see in a, in a normal kind of travel guide. Uh, that's someone who's living there who, who really knows the ins and outs
3: yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the UK publications that I'm writing for recently want to hear, like, the bad side, <laughs> things with a negative spin, um, whereas US publications want all of the sort of That's more positive. It's interesting. I what <laughs> it is about their culture. You know, come
2: from the <laughs> restaurant industry. I, read lot, I like to read restaurant reviews. Mm-hmm. Um, and UK restaurant reviews, bad ones, t- have this certain type of venom that you just don't get out of a US based restaurant review.
3: Yeah, I mean completely like Jay Rayner's vitriol reaches unbelievable peaks and it's super entertaining <laughs> but uh but also like a little bit jarring especially if you compare it to other sort of national journalistic approaches. Yeah and what what was the moment uh so did you go to Italy Thinking that you were going
2: to uh, surround yourself by by art or was food the, the primary goal when you were there?
3: I thought I was going to go spend a lot of time looking at second century um, sarcophagi. <laughs> that was like what I was way into. I still am totally into that subject. Um, but I grew up in a restaurant family. I was always super interested in food, mm-hmm. um, always questioning what we were eating. I'm from New Jersey, so the Garden State, why we were eating certain things. Um, contemplating seasons, even before, you know, like in the 90s when when I was thinking about these things. And then when I went over to Italy, it was only natural that food became the lens through which I analyzed the rest of the culture, particularly as I traveled from Rome to Naples to Bari to Lecce to Palermo and saw the huge differences in culture, even though there were often very common historical elements. So, yeah, I mean, food and, of course, wine um, and much later craft beer, Um, which only sort of becomes a thing in in Italy in a significant way in 2009 and onwards, Um, those became the tools that I used for interpreting the um, Italian food culture, regional food culture.
2: And then in order to kind of create this this job for yourself where you're, you're constantly writing and, and you're on TV and
3: your blog and your app. And how, to, how, did that, how did that all come about? So the TV stuff is um, actually quite separate. It's connected to a degree that I did in archaeological spelunking there are tons of caves in Rome and all sorts of like gross sewers and awesome uh, I'm very aqueducts. familiar with archaeological
2: <laughs> spelunking, as a matter of fact.
3: Um, no, that's indeed, crazy. I've never var- heard of that. There's a vast network of uh, people in New York that, you know, go trespassing in subway tunnels and like water conduits and things. Well, just imagine doing the same thing in Rome, but you're in an aqueduct from, you know, the second century BC or the Cloaca Maxima, which is from 600 BC. Um, so through that, um, I ended up, working on producing and and being featured in a five episodes of cities of the underworld, which was on the history channel. And then, I mean, it's all about like sort of word of mouth. So then other, other uh, um, productions called Um, the other things like the writing was really developed out of um, my master's degree. I studied Italian gastronomic culture and I wanted to analyze 21st century food in Rome. At the time, um, this is going maybe like six years back or so, no one wanted to hear about contemporary food, and still a lot of publications and people don't want to know about what's going on. Modern or contemporary food in Rome is not molecular, it's not radical, but it is part of this evolution of cuisine that reflects what's going on in Italy right now. 2000 marked this turning point in the economy, in culture, and the food has reflected that. So my blog was really born, and then the writing that comes out of the blog, were really born to... Express what was going on. Um, the blog became a place where I could write things that no one would pay me to publish, <laughs> um, and I, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of journalist bloggers have that have that issue. You've got all these great stories that you want to get out there, but in essence, they're not right. They're not timely, even though they're important. And then the apps um, I've got now too soon to be three, Katie Parla's Rome and Katie Parla's Istanbul were were born out of that same desire to like highlight what was going on at the moment and to have a product that was released and then constantly updated in a way that the books I was writing, the guidebooks and and travel guides and things like that couldn't be. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, just having being able to give visitors to Rome a really unique and authentic view of what is actually happening. Um, In Rome or Istanbul in the case of the other app Um And it's been really exciting because people are able to go to places that they otherwise wouldn't have felt comfortable visiting and that keeps those small businesses who are terrible at communicating and posting their hours and like being open when they're supposed to be. That keeps them going. Yeah. So Well,
2: I I wish that I that I had Kitty Parlors room that the app last time. I've been to room four times and it would have really come in in handy. you know, especially with these more modern restaurants because I, I find that personally I'm more drawn to um, that that sense of typical or traditional sure. food uh, in the area, especially in, in, in Italy. I feel like I've been to a couple of restaurants that have tried to push the envelope and have sort of failed miserably. I'm like, oh, why didn't I just go to like a simple trattoria and, mm-hmm. and have something a little bit more soulful? Yeah. Um, but... Describe a little bit more what what is going on for these people who aren't do, going the molecular gastronomy route, mm-hmm. but are are making modern, up to date restaurants.
3: So when I think of contemporary cuisine in Rome, a few things come to mind. One is um, like the more economical sort of street food, um, where you have people using really good flowers for their breads. Like when you went to Pizzarium, that pizza by the slice is made with really great ingredients. I that, love that place. That's an innovation in Roman street it's food. It's true. It's not like, traditional. No one's using good stuff. Except for a handful of yeah, people. Yeah, he
2: opened it, he was saying, because he found that there was no good pizza al which is pizza by the slice. It was all just, like, mass industrially produced from, like, bad ingredients. Of course, and, of course. And, and he, like, you know, used good flour, seasonal ingredients, let the dough raise for, like, seven weeks or something, I don't know, two days or something like that.
3: Yeah, I mean, that that approach, that is 21st century cuisine. That's not mm-hmm. molecular. That's not doing anything that's, like, changing um, Italian cuisine Uh, in general, but it is creating a new way to eat in a city, which has really provincial characteristics, but is in fact a metropolis. I mean, there are estimated (laughs) two and a half, three million people in Rome, some say 4 million, depending on who's counting. The census sort of says otherwise. But um, so that's one good example, like this affordable, um, quality driven, Street food. And you see that at like Trapizzino, which is a very new place that has made Roman secondi, um, so like oxtail or uh, chicken with peppers, portable. People can't afford to go out to lunch um, every day like they used to. You know, like before the Euro, a lot of people had those like tickets that bureaucrats would get, the um, vouchers for meals. And you'll be able to go out and have a pretty good meal for lunch and feel satisfied. Mm-hmm. That's not the case anymore.
2: Is that also because maybe Rome is becoming a little bit more modern, a little more Western, and people aren't doing two- and three-hour lunches?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think the, the way that people work has really changed. And yeah. if you look at like, the number of unemployed people under the age of 25, that whole market is like absent. People aren't going out and spending money at, at lunchtime or dinnertime. So there's this new niche. Um, between the unemployed or the underemployed and then generally people who are employed but don't have um the funds to support the dining mm. culture as it used to be as as you know on your last trip probably people are going out more every year there's a decline in in how people eat at restaurants so in like trapizino um or at uh, mortier Vai, which is in the new testacho market you've got these um you've got these places that are making sandwiches stuffed with Roman second courses. This is not a radical change. I mean, this isn't something that would blow people away in another city, but in Rome it's an innovation and it makes something that feels hearty and satisfying and it's cheap. Anyone can afford it. Um, and, uh, and so that's really new. And then, at, you know, at the restaurant table, you can still find a few trattoria in, uh, trattorias in Rome that are using decent ingredients. There aren't that many. Um, but you, see I mean, when you have like your contorno your vegetable side dish Mm -hmm. like compare what you had 10 years ago to what's on your plate today it's totally different there's no flavor there's no sense of seasonality in most places you can get your um, braised artichokes year-round when really it's from february to may that the roman globe artichoke is in season that's when it has the most flavor that's when it's the most um, life-changing but people are responding to tourist demand local demand the locals um, abandoning of seasonal produce or their love of it um, so like the restaurant table you can go to places like Rosholi so this this place does a lot of dishes there are certain dishes that they do really really well like their carbonara um, which uses really high quality durum wheat pasta um, a really nice artisanal guanciale which is cured pork gel they use black pepper from Malaysia um, they use eggs from Palo Parisi which in my opinion and I probably could get sued for this if I said this in Italy, is a bit of a scam. Um, they're eggs that are 20 bucks a dozen, 20 US dollars equivalent a dozen. Um, and this Tuscan pseudo farmer feeds uh, goat's milk to his Livorno hens, and they're wildly expensive. Um, but all of these <laughs> things combined together taste really, really good. Also, there's fantastic pecorino from Brunelli, which is mm-hmm. a Roman producer, super salty. So the sourcing of ingredients, I mean, something that the, that's been a discussion in you know on the coasts in the US for so long, is something that is contemporary in in some parts of of Roman cuisine. That's good to know. Yeah.
2: All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk to Katie about what the Romans are drinking, um, especially at these uh, new restaurants. You are listening to Radio Raw by Obesity here on the Heritage Radio Network dot org.
4: to announce our heritage rare breed chicken rotation we've partnered with frank reese the country's preeminent poultry farmer to create an alternative market for non-industry bred chicken and show our customers what real chicken tastes like Frank's chickens look and taste different from commodity poultry. They have not been genetically manipulated or pumped with antibiotics to increase their growth rate. Frank breeds and hatches his own birds so he can guarantee the finest animal welfare from start to finish. Every three months, Heritage Foods USA will offer a new rare breed of chicken on our website and at the Heritage Meat Shop. Our inaugural variety is the Colombian Wyandotte. These birds are good for frying and are sought after for their fine texture, taste, and healthy lipid fine yellow fat. Heritage Foods USA is the only place you can taste these special heritage birds. Order today at heritagefoodsusa.com.
2: We're back on In the Drink. Thanks, Frank, for taking good care of your chickens. Uh, (laughs) We are with Katie Parla. Um... And Katie, so you're telling us about what's going on with the food, uh, the changing kind of food culture in Rome. Um, it- tell us about what's going on with the drink culture you know i'm particularly interested in the aperitivo hour which uh obviously it's something that started i, I guess that the hour part is something that i added in the american <laughs> but the aperitivo culture something that, that started further up north in in milan and it kind of has made its way to most uh major cities um aperitivo is the time before dinner when uh restaurants and, and bars and cafes will put out some Some food and and uh the food is is free uh if you if you order drinks now sometimes they're 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 really sad and sometimes it can be really good one plate maximum (laughs) they keep track (laughs) one plate per drink is that
3: one plate per drink yeah
2: yeah i think that's a roman thing isn't it totally yeah (laughs) because
3: because romans abuse it (laughs) they abuse
2: the buffet um i'm definitely guilty of that
3: (laughs) um yeah, I mean, I think the aperitivo certainly certainly has changed over the decade that I've been in Rome. And uh, it used to be a cheap way for students to eat. I mean, there are like well over 100,000 students in, in Rome, the University of Rome. There are multiple universities of Rome, plus, you know, all the, um, the American um, foreign campuses. There were a lot of kids that needed to eat cheap on a budget and wanted to drink with it. Um, and uh, and so places like especially in Trastevere or um, the area around the university, um, like Piazza Bologna area would have, you know, you go get a spritz or a bad mojito or something like that for eight euros. And then you have access to a massive buffet populated with pasta salads and um, lots of terrible couscous and like gross stuff, um, in my opinion. I mean, you don't go to the aperitivo to have like a fine Um, delicious experience. You go there to fill up on carbs um, and to drink something that's not very well made. That was in the past. There are now some examples of great happy hours. And people do use the word Mm. happy hour, though they spell it phonetically, um, starting with an A, A (laughs) Um, A-P-I. And so you can go to a place... In the center of Rome, like Barnum Cafe, and get a really well-made drink with some decent snacks. Um, There's a place in Pineto that opened in November or December called Coso, and they serve very, very edible snacks along with their quite creative cocktails. Um, The Dome Hotel, which is this like super luxurious Mm -hmm. five-star in uh, Via Giulia, so right in the center of Rome, um, they serve ample snacks with their drinks, so you have to go later in the happy hour hours because the happy hour in Rome lasts from like six to nine PM. Um, because that's when the well trained um, bartender is working. If <laughs> you go earlier, you advice. get like the worst, most expensive drink.
2: I'm uh, pleasantly surprised to hear you use the words "creative cocktails" when when describing uh, a cocktail in in Italy because I, I haven't really come across too much of that. Uh, um, Tell us what, what's going on. Are there, are there people who are embracing the, you know, the boutique, the craft cocktail movement? And
3: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think there are two schools. There are um, places like Barnum Cafe or the Gin Corner or the long-established Jerry Thomas Project that are looking to um, prohibition and pre-prohibition cocktails. They're deriving a lot of their menu from uh, American cocktail culture of the early 20th century, late 19th, early 20th century. And then you have the more creative cocktails, um, Kozo, which I mentioned, um, wants wants to do a good drink, but they also want to root their drinks in Rome. They want to make their cocktails feel Roman. So their vodka sour is called a carbonara sour. Um, and they use like fat washed vodka and coarsely ground back black pepper, um, egg white instead of egg yolk, which is one of the com- components of carbonara. So they want to do something that's like a bit creative, a little tongue in cheek, um, and, uh, and fun. And the place is like totally funky and, and uh they can certainly serve you like a very classic Sazerac, but they're more interested in playing with flavors and and garnishes and and things like this. So it's it's part of this sort of new phase in in Roman cocktail culture to make the craft cocktails feel more Roman.
2: Now is this a uh is this a movement? Is this something that there's more than just a couple of players doing it? Or uh, is it really just these, these few that you mentioned as, as the kind of pioneers?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's, we haven't really reached critical mass citywide, um, but in the past, like, 18 months... And especially in the past three months, a lot of places have opened. Like the Gin Corner opened in uh, June and they have 80 gins. Like no place in Italy has 80 gins. So this, this is pretty impressive. Um, Barnum Cafe does amazing cocktails. They do a lot of classic stuff. They opened a year ago. Um, the, uh, the Hotel Majestic Bar um, is run by uh, Emanuele Brocatelli, who did the cocktail menus at Café Propaganda and Stazione di Posta. You've got Litro, which is a mezcal bar, and they do lots of mezcal cocktails. These are all really new things. And in Rome, we don't generally see such a lar- relatively large number of places doing that same sort of similar genre opening all at the same time. So there is something driving this.
2: Absolutely blown my mind to know that there's <laughs> mezcal. You can find mezcal in Rome.
3: It's awesome. It's yeah. so great.
2: Finally, uh, usually I mean couldn't even find a bottle of wine from a neighboring region you know so to find mezcal is, uh, that's pretty cool
3: yeah I mean it's super exciting and also the, the wine culture is changing I mean yeah I let, let's
2: s- talk about the wine culture uh, you know e- here in New York, we get very few uh, wines from the region of Lazio that are that are imported, which is uh, you know surprising to me. And on one hand, because of it's it's a a kind of vast region that has a very very long history of of making wine since at least the ancient Roman times, right? Um, but on the other hand, what I mean, what I always tell people is that there's a uh, quite quite a local market with uh, a large city, big population yeah, and sure. lots of tourism. And so they, they tend to suck up a lot of their, of their own wine. And then uh, a lot, there aren't, at least from what I can tell, a lot of very small, like boutique producers. We get a couple here in the States. I can think of a few that we have on our list like Le Coste, um Damiano Choli and Occhi pinti Different Okipinti from the Andrea Okipinti. Yeah, Andrea instead of Ariana. Uh but not we don't get a ton of, of great Lazio wines. What is there, is there a disconnect? Are there tons of small producers who are making great wine in Lazio and we, we just don't see them here in the States or is it, is it still evolving?
3: I mean, it's still changing. There are some really great producers that are doing, um, that are doing wines not for a Roman public. I mean, Le Coste sells some Le in in and around Rome um, but the market for that wine um, is in London, it's in mm-hmm. Sydney, it's in New York. Um, Los Angeles, even um, and uh, and so like you have certainly a local consumption of wines, and there are several places in the city of Rome that only serve local wines, and people are very open to drinking very simple wines based on like Trebbiano, Malvasia, um, Cesanese I mean, like Frascati Now, Frascati
2: is the, uh, the right the the most famous and historic wine, right. but uh, is there a delicious Frescati? Is there someone who's making? Um, a, a really like well made artisanal frascati.
3: Oh man, I mean. <laughs> maybe. Oh no! If you don't
2: know, then we're all doomed.
3: <laughs> I know. Um, I mean, I don't. I don't tend to drink a lot of frascati. Um, when I want to drink something, that's like, I mean, frascati is a DOCG, and I think you know we can talk for ages about the questionability of of rankings like this. Um, Frascati is perfectly drinkable in many of its finer forms. Um, but it's not something that I crave. If I want, if I want a wine that feels rooted in Lazio, I and something simple and that's really readily available both in the US as well as in Rome, um, I'll go for like Marco Carpinetti. Organic producer, he does a lot of um, Bellone-based uh, wines, mm-hmm. like nice, fresh, good acid, nice structure, white wines. Um, he's also working with, like, Nero Buono and Cori. So those are, those are like, the sort of simpler wines that I go for. Um, Le Coste, um, so Clementine and, and Gianmarco um, up near Lake Bolzano and Gradoli are doing a lot of um, skin contact wines with mixtures of all sorts of indigenous white grapes that are allowed in several of the, the Appalachians up there. Um, but so much of that... Um, is either consumed in like the trattorias that are buddies with the winemakers, or uh, shipped abroad, and you know London consumes a lot of that. There's a huge natural wine, mm-hmm. especially Italian natural wine, interest in in London. Um,
2: yeah, I was just in um, Orvieto, and it's like, all right, I'm going to drink some cheap Palobea. It's going right. to be great. <laughs> and there, there's no Palobea in Orvieto; it's all exported.
3: So I'm always terrible at pronouncing the name of the monastery that Giampiero Bea works with, the uh, Monastero Suore Chistercens. Cis- Cistercensi. The, yeah, the Cistercensi nuns. Yes. Um, they make uh, about twelve thousand bottles of their Chinobium. Um, and eighty percent of that is shipped to the United States. I love that wine. It's so good! It's super good. <laughs> and you can be... you can not find it in Rome because there is no local interest in it. It's mm-hmm. a, it's a too funky. difficult wine. It's funky. It's not something that people want to drink with the food that is served in Rome. Um, so you'll have more luck finding like the like quality, but more mainstream like Casale de Lioria, um, Marco Carpinetti. I mean, certainly Damiano Cholli. Um, another sort of mind boggling thing, well, not particularly mind boggling, if you know the story behind Fiorano is that you cannot find Fiorano, um, pre 95 wines in Rome. I mean, they're all in New York. Um, so you have really these exceptional opportunities to drink lots of wines. We
2: have like five or six different SKUs of Fiorano pre 1995 at, at our restaurants, yeah.
3: Yeah, everyone should go drink them because <laughs> they're impossible to find. They're super rare. And, you know, like they retail for around like 125 The prices that I've seen at, at restaurants are very reasonable. I mean, the markup's not triple or anything. Um, these are like fantastic, brilliant, age-worthy wines. Probably like the 95s have another 10, 15, 20 years in the cellar to go. So I wouldn't be popping any of those bottles. But, um, But yeah, like we can't get some of these really exceptional things that are total anomalies in Lazio, because as you know, so many of the producers in Lazio, especially the ones in Rome and Fiorano is sort of on the cusp of the metropolitan area. Um, didn't really have a, a local audience except for some really fine restaurants that have drunk up all the bottles.
2: (laughs) And, uh, one, one last topic, you alluded to it before, but, uh, the beer culture in, uh, in Rome. I, I always say when, uh, I'm talking about Italian beer. That, that of all of the places in the world that produce beer, I think that Italy has the most exciting beer culture, uh, maybe outside of the United States. Uh, but because they've in a way taken all of the traditional styles of beer and said we don't care, like we're just going to come up with completely new shit ourselves yeah. and be you know use all of our inherent creativity uh, and apply that to the realm of beer.
3: Yeah, it's so amazing because there are so many of these artisan crafts that are dying. The creativity is leaving a lot of industries. And it feels like it's all being concentrated in the beer industry because you have exceptional American or uh, UK or Belgian inspired beers, or things that are totally new. Um, And right now, like, Uh, actually at the end of january um anyone who's headed to rome should look for this beer it won't be around for long um it sells out pretty quickly but beer del borgo which is a brewery not far from rome makes an oyster stout they use french oysters and roman bean clams um in the brewing process you get this really super sapid really delicate but complicated uh beer that is just stunning some of it gets exported to the u.s Mm -hmm. um though because the distribution is, is so limited, it's difficult to find. So check that out when you're in, in Rome and head to, like, Open Balladine. Um, Maquet, Siete Venuti Fa. usually has some. Um, certainly you can buy it at Domus Biri, one of the leading beer shops.
2: And has the uh, the Roman market really embraced these kind of more creative beers?
3: Yeah, I mean, for sure. Rome is the Italian craft beer consumption capital. Most people are still drinking Peroni. Most people are still spending nationwide most families are still spending their 12 euros a month on wine their six euros a month on beer which is not the population that is drinking these beers and wines and cocktails that i alluded to before but there is a small but growing group of people who's interested in something that's quality something that is different something that still mirrors the territory where it comes from but is certainly a break with um maybe the more run-of-the-mill tradition
2: all right katie parla what a blast having you was on the so show fun. thanks so much for having me uh next time you guys go to rome london or istanbul um Check out Katie Parla's apps, Katie Parla's blog. Uh, I for sure will be. I'm. You've you just like re-inspired my uh, my desire to go back to Rome Rome as soon as possible. Book your
3: tickets. Soon. Really,
2: especially before artichoke season is is yeah. over. Um, and uh, thanks to all of you for listening. This has been in the drink on HeritageRadioNetwork dot org.